want to share two stories with you. Uh, one story is about uh, a person named DJ, which I've changed the name, but it's a true story. And then the other person's name is Jenny. And so uh, DJ was someone that I met while I was out uh, just sharing the gospel. And uh, I asked him, have, have you had your sins forgiven? Um, can, can you share with me if you've had your sins forgiven? He said, no, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, I don't have anything that I need forgiven by God. Um, God and I are good. Jesus, he loves me. God loves me. I'm good. I really, I, I don't care to talk about that. And uh, I've, I've encountered that many times, actually, that, that people who are kind of in DJ situation, they might even attend church. Uh, they might even serve, they actually might even be running the sound equipment right now. No, <laughs> that's a little too creepy. I love you, Mara. Um, it was just an illustration. But, you know, they, setting in a church service and saying, I'm good, I'm good. Um, you know, I come to church regularly. I, I take part in various religious activities. Um, really don't want to talk about repentance right now. And, and the thing is that in, in many cases, they don't belong to God. And we're going to see that here in Scripture. Uh, another story, Jenny, uh, I was back when I lived in Chicago, I was crossing a park, Elizabeth and I, and she came and approached us and was in desperate need for help. And, and we helped her. And then I shared the gospel with her. And her response was, will he really forgive anything? And so I revisited uh, Christ's blood and how that it had been shed for all sin and that, that she could be forgiven. And we went back and forth and she would repeat it again and again. But will he forgive anything? Will he forgive what I have done? And we could not move beyond that point in the conversation because she was convinced that she could not find rest in God. Because surely she could not be forgiven. And so, stepping from those stories into God's Word, we, we walk through God's Word every week here at Treasure in Christ Church. We believe that we find life in God's Word, that it is inspired by God. We're moving through a sermon series on beholding our Savior. And so we're going to take a look at Jesus through the lens of Scripture. But when we see Hebrews 4 and we read verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. If you're the DJ person that I mentioned, you might say, since I've heard the word of God all my life, why should I work hard to believe in Jesus? And if you're Jenny, who I mentioned, you might say, since I'm probably going to fail anyway, why should I work hard to believe in Jesus? And so I'm hoping that this morning as we work through this text, we can come away with the answer from Scripture to the question, why should we work hard to believe in Jesus? Why should we work hard to believe in Jesus? And we start out here in, in chapter 4, verse 11. We don't know who the author is. It might have been Paul. It might have been Apollos. What we do know is it's inspired. God breathed. But he says, let us, us, together, let us, Therefore, strive to enter that rest. Work with all of our effort. Push forward with intensity to enter that rest. Rest being the uh, lack of toil. Rest being that I can 
rest in God. It was originally the promised land that the, the Israelites were encouraged to enter into that rest. And uh, they did not do through unbelief. And our rest that they was pointing forward to our rest we call heaven. That we would be into God's very presence. He says, work with all of your might. Therefore. Well, if there's a therefore in scripture, we always want to go back and see what's it pointing back to. And if you look over in chapter 3, verse 19, it says, So we see that they, the Israelites, were unable to enter because of unbelief. Israel had come to the very foot uh, hills of, of Canaan, the promised land, and God had said, Go in there, I'm with you. And the spies came back and said, There are giants in the land. We want an alternate possibility here. We can't trust God. We can't believe that God will actually do this. So through unbelief, they did not unite faith with the Word of God. And we see that in chapter 4. It keeps going. The, uh, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. The Gospels come to us. The Gospel went to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So he is painting a picture of a possibility that you can have a grouping, a collective group of people who are running after God. And in that group there are people who are hearing the Word of God regularly. Like preaching every week, but it's not united with faith and therefore they have fooled themselves into believing they belong to God. But they don't. They're just hearing the Word of God and they don't belong to God. And so he says here uh, in our text in verse 11, let us collectively, therefore, work with all of our might, strive to enter that rest so that no one person may fall by that same sort of disobedience. The disobedience being the disobedience of unbelief. So that's our call here, is, is that we would work together, strive together. Are we, are we working to, to work the children's ministry? Are we working to you know, keep the lights on? Are we working to make sure? No, we're working to believe. We're striving with all of our might that one of us would not fall to unbelief, proving that you were not truly part of this body. For, he says, there's a reason here, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the reason that we should strive to enter that rest is so that no one of us will fall by the disobedience of unbelief because you really can't hide. The Word of God pierces through all the layers that we would try to hide behind. When he says Word of God, usually in Hebrews, he's talking about the spoken, authoritative, kind of like from the mountain down to the Israelites, the Word of God. And he's saying it wasn't united with belief in them. Well, now we have the Word of God in print form. 
and we have the word here that stares us in the eyes, and it cuts to the very piercing of division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow. It cuts through the very human recesses of the human heart. It basically, when I talk to the people in the neighborhood, or even I talk to here, people here in this room, and, and I might ask questions about eternal things, um, you know, how, how are you and God doing? Has, has God redeemed you from your sin? Usually, the feeling is, let's get this picky preacher off my back. I'll give him the answers that will make him think I'm okay, and then I can get back to what I was doing before he started the conversation. And that's fine. I mean, I know that's the case. But my heart's intent, and your heart's intent when you share the gospel, is not for people to make me feel good about the fact that I've just shared the gospel. My intent is for the truth of God's word to pierce the heart that they would in reality be good with God. Not that they would sit in a false sense of security. And so this is given as a reason or a, a, a direct result of why we should strive to enter that rest so that no one will fall, is that we can't hide anyway. God pierces through... By the way, if you're uh, theology buffs and you're into like trying to prove whether the anthropology of man is trichotomous or dichotomous, um, and this is not about that. If you don't care about that stuff, just forget I said that. I really don't think he's trying to prove any kind of points about the makeup of man. He's just saying the Word of God, it pierces through all of the defenses. It knows why you do what you do. It sees you, and and it cuts through, and it sees. What is it seeing? It sees belief or unbelief. Belonging or not belonging. That's what it sees. No creature is hidden from his sight. No created thing. No tree, no dog, no animal, no person. It doesn't matter what you want to call it. It's God can see through all things. And it says that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. And this word is uncovered for examination. The word there, it says uh, exposed. In some translations, it'll say laid bare. It's this metaphor of a wrestling technique where one wrestler is wrestling against the other and they actually get a chokehold to get them on the neck and they pull them back and they're exposed and they're defenseless. And there's victory. And so it's this picture of all your defenses have been stripped away and you stand before the judge of the universe and he sees very clearly whether you are his or not. And it matters not whether you've convinced a preacher or, or your community group leader or your community, you know, the people around you, your friends, your loved ones. It doesn't matter. What matters is that he sees belief in your heart that the Holy Spirit has actually been applied to you. And he says... We're exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. There's kind of a word play there. If you were to translate it really woodenly, it would be the eyes of him to whom we the word. So it's the word of God, and then it ends with the word. And so it's all just this package of summarizing the concept that we're warned against false belief that we can sail forward with the word of God merely in our ears and not united by faith. Persevering faith, that is continuing faith, is validation that faith is even there. 
And that's the whole point of Hebrews. It's, it's not that we would look back to a prayer in the past where we wrote a date in our Bibles, although that's good, I've done that myself. But it's continuing faith. The Word of God goes deep beneath all the layers and determines whether we believe or we do not believe. And we can't bluff our way into rest. We're stripped of all of our disguise and all of our protection. So, the first point here I think that the author is trying to make is we should work hard to believe in Jesus because we're laid bare before the Word of God. That's why. So, if you're sitting here this morning, you're listening to me and you're thinking, that's most definitely not about me. I grieve for you. Probably few things makes me sadder than talking to someone who is entirely asleep to their spiritual condition. And, and characteristics of that would be they don't repent easily. I haven't got anything to repent of. I haven't done anything wrong. That kind of repentance is not for me, you know? And repentance is the hallmark of a Christian. Um, they, they believe perhaps they don't need church. They perhaps believe I don't need the Word of God. God's happy with me as I am. And, they, and to, to my face, they'll say they claim, they claim Jesus, but in their hearts, they've only heard the word. They haven't united it with faith. They're fooled into this confidence in false righteousness. And the fruit of faith that we see all through the text is a striving for repentance, a striving to love and obey Jesus, a striving to love the bride of Christ, His church. And a sure sign that you might be on shaky ground is to be unable to listen to God's word in the hands of someone else. Not that every time, you know, another believer comes to me and says, Craig, you know, the scripture, I just feel like you need to hear this because this is an area where you're struggling. And here's what scripture has to say. Not that every time that happens, they're right because they're finite. But if every single time someone tries to share the word with me, I'm like, no, that is not me. I don't want to hear that. You you might want to check your heart because the word will cut surgically deep and it will be helpful to your soul. Spoken a word of God in the hands of another believer would be helpful. So what are some applications? Well, the biggest thing for me in reading this is, wake up! <laughs> Particularly pertinent on the second service. Wake up! <laughs> Lean into the laying bare of the word of God, particularly in the hands of another believer. So that might mean you, you might want to join an O2 group. You might want to join a community group. Because it, not that those things are super holy, but they are opportunities for the word of God in the hands of another believer to hit and hit its mark. And I can say, oh, thank you. And it, it can cut and, and surgically help. Don't run away. Don't be the person that no one knows, right? The fringe person that no one really knows who I am and they can't see because I'm too scared of what they might say. No, lean in to the laying bare of the Word of God. And then on the flip side of that, wake up and exhort one another with tears of compassion. This looks like passionate pleas to others for belief in Jesus, which will lead to their following in the footsteps of Jesus. It's us striving together. Fear, self-justification. Fear, unbelief, Scripture says. Fear having all the spiritual answers for your soul's uh, selfishness. Fear being contented with your own view of yourself. Like, I've got all the answers. Nobody can tell me anything. Fear, self-delusion. And these are fears for me, right? I hope, I hope this isn't coming across as, yes, yeah, so you're supposed to listen to whoever the preacher is. 
and then nobody else. No, this is a group collective thing here, right? I should fear self-delusion, which comes from isolation from the Word of God. So number one, we should work hard to believe in Jesus because we are laid bare. Number two, we're going to see that we should work hard to believe in Jesus because Jesus passed through the heavens and sympathizes with our weaknesses. You see that in verses 14 and 15. He has passed through the heavens and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's, it's, by the way, it's really great. You know, we get to talk about Jesus now. <laughs> the last stuff was kind of heady, right? Or heavy. <laughs> it's good that we have Jesus at the end of the whole laying bare part. But it says, since then, some translations say, therefore, because of being laid bare, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's verse 14 and 15. He's saying here, we have a great high priest, a go-between, a person who would go into God's behalf, and he has passed through the heavens. In the same way that the Word of God has penetrated our hearts, Jesus, the God-man, has penetrated the throne room. He's gone up there, and now that is a reason and a motivation that we would hold fast our confession in Him. He's a sympathizer. It says that He sympathizes with us. By the way, that word hold fast is just a reiteration of strive, right? It's a a work word. Strive and hold fast. And and we get all confused about, well, you know, it's not works. You're right. It's not works. It's faith. And it's struggling forward. Faith. Trusting in God that He has blessed us with. It's a great combination all through Scripture. But it says, pass through the heavens. Jesus, the whole, hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable. If you're an English teacher, if you're a student of English, if you're a kid going to grammar school, if they still have those, I'm not sure. Um, Double negative, right? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. And so you flip that and say, what's that mean? The positive is, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is God, became human, therefore he can sympathize with our weaknesses, the human frailties of wanting to give in to unbelief, of walking through this hard life, and he can sympathize. And and we all know this. I can remember um, working in a manufacturing plant where it's always, you have the foreman, the managers, and then you have the guys who work the line, right? And, And the managers are always thinking about how the people who work the line are too lazy and they won't obey, and the people who work in the line are always talking about the managers, how they don't have a clue about what's really going on in this plant because they don't touch the product every day. And so you have this kind of us against them. Same thing, as soon as I get on my bike and ride home, it's going to happen again. It's cyclists versus the cars, or the cyclists versus the pedestrians, which you don't have a lot of pedestrians here unless you go in Fayetteville. But, but you've got this concept that they're not thinking right. If I'm on my bike, I'm the one that, that is thinking right. And the person driving the car just needs to think better. And the person in the car says, there's crazy cyclists. Well, they just get out of the way. It's, right? Well, uh, the most clearly I've seen this is when I worked at McDonald's. I was a cashier. 
So you're running the drive-through. You know, you got to you got to get the drive-through. You got the front counter. You got to get it on 60 seconds or less. Might be 40 seconds or less. And you got to do this. You got to grab the fries. You got to do all these things. And you're the crew uh, member. They love to give you those great titles. You're the crew member. And then there are the managers who are the shirt and ties. Shirt and ties, they don't know what's going on. We're the ones that are working. We're getting our hands greasy. We're putting the fries down. You know, we're, we're making the orders. We're getting stressed out as the clock counts on the drive through And the person in the car doesn't even know what they want to begin with. And they've got their windshield wipers flipping back and forth, hitting me in the face with the rain. And everybody's worked at McDonald's, right? <laughs> Everybody. It's like a, a rite of passage. But, but the point is, I remember the day they gave me a shirt and a tie. And they said, we want you to manage. And the guy who worked the grill, who previously we were buddies, goes, oh no, now you're one of them. Right? You can't sympathize anymore. Guess what? Jesus stepped down. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He puts skin on. God in the flesh, incarnate. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Not only does he do that, the text says that he sympathizes in our weaknesses and he's been tempted in every way in which you have been, yet without sin. He sympathizes. He knows the grueling process of faith. He knows the process of of being faced with a travesty and believing anyway. And some would say, yeah, but he was sinless. I mean, he was God, so he didn't have to put up with as much as I do. But I would say, on the contrary, we give in to temptation. We don't get the full force of that temptation. It grows and it grows and it grows, and then we give in and sin. Jesus kept going and didn't sin. He felt the full force of the temptation. And so, this is a motivation for our holding fast our confession in him. Charles Simeon wrote in 1833 about this to kind of help us wrap our minds around Jesus sympathizing with us. He says, In bodily sufferings he was tried with hunger and thirst and weariness and pain and had not even a place where to lay his head. As for persecutions from men, no human being was ever pursued with such bitter, unrelenting animosity as he. No terms were too vile to be applied to him. He was called a glutton and a wine-bibber, a deceiver and a blasphemer, a Samaritan and a devil. And the whole nation rose against him with that indignant cry, Crucify him! Crucify him! Of his assaults from Satan, what shall we say? What words can express the conflicts he maintained with all the powers of darkness in the wilderness and in the Garden of Gethsemane? When through the agonies of his soul, his whole body was bathed in a bloody sweat. From the hidings of his father's face also, and from a sense of his wrath, when, as we are told, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. His sufferings infinitely surpassed all that any created imagination can conceive. When his soul was sore troubled even unto death, he prayed indeed for the removal of the bitter cup, yet drank it and put into his hands without complaint. But when he was called to endure the consummation of his misery in the hidings of his father's face, he could not forbear pouring forth that heart-rending complaint, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Thus was he foremost in almost every trial that we can possibly be called upon to sustain. And notwithstanding, in him was no sin. He was far beyond any of the sinners of mankind, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We should work hard to believe in Jesus because Jesus passed through the heavens and sympathizes with our weaknesses. The Word of God has penetrated our deepest secrets and laid us bare. Jesus has penetrated the deepest realms of heaven, entering into the throne room of our judge, and hope is rising. Jesus is there pleading our case before the throne, those who have trusted in him, those who have called out to him. I was thinking of a time in Chicago where I used to live that I was on a ministry team that went into a neighborhood, actually the neighborhood that President Obama hails from there in Chicago, and we went to a nursing home. And this story doesn't come from my experience. It comes from some of my friends' experience because we were in different parts of the nursing home. But similar to most nursing care facilities, every once in a while there'd be somebody yelling out, uh, a little bit of dementia and, and things. And as they were going down the hallway, they would hear someone every once in a while crying out from one of the rooms, Forget not! And they'd, they'd go a couple more rooms and they'd hear, Forget not! And they, they came to the door and they looked inside and there was an African-American lady lying there in the bed and every once in a while she'd cry out and, and she would say, Forget not his benefits! And... One of the guys had the, the wit about him to pull out his Bible and finish the quote for him, for her. Psalm 103.2 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits! See, she couldn't remember probably her children's names. She probably couldn't remember her own husband's name. She might not even be able to remember her name. But she was holding fast her confession. Holding fast her confession that Jesus is my only hope. And so, my application for you is, and me, is hold fast your confession. I, I, I was brainstorming God, how am I going to talk about holding fast your confession? That seems so abstract. And um, one thing that I did myself this week is I made an appointment with Jesus. So, that's what we're going to share with you. You don't have to do this, it's just an idea, but make an appointment with Jesus. Take your calendar and look over the next six months and pick a day that Jesus gets two hours of your time. Just make an appointment, put it on there. And during those two hours, you're going to sit and ponder Jesus. You're going to get to know Him. You're going to analyze Him. You're going to figure Him out. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to go to the Gospels. And you're just going to sit there and read. And you're going to write down all the things that you learn about Jesus. It's your two-hour appointment with Jesus. And, and just to whet your appetite, um, here are some examples of, of things that I saw as I was meeting with Jesus. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you keep reading and, and you see Simon Peter falling down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus' response, Do not be afraid. 
Or you see Jesus stretching out his hand and touching a man who has a disease much worse than AIDS. It's leprosy. He, he, could, he could get sick and lose his arm. And he touches the man and says, I will be clean. And, and he heals the man out of compassion. Later you're going to see him meeting a guy named Levi who was a tax collector, who was a traitor against his country, sold his people out for financial gain. And looking at him and saying, follow me. And then later you're going to see him being asked, why do you eat with sinners? And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick need a physician. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And then you're going to see a woman of the city coming and and washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And he turns to his and says, your sins are forgiven. This is the high priest that we are called to hold fast our confession in. And so hold fast your confession by gazing at Jesus and seeing who he is. Third, we're going to see in verse 16, we should work hard to believe in Jesus so that we may receive mercy and timely grace. See that in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With confidence, draw near. That is work words again, right? Strive, hold fast, draw near. Your gut response when the Word of God lays you bare is to run away. You are hardwired that way. Broken by sin. I shouldn't say hardwired because you weren't created that way. But you're broken that way. I'm broken that way. I am broken in a sense that when I am laid bare by the Word of God, I want to run away. And this says, you're laid bare, hold fast, draw near. Laid bare, hold fast, draw near. You've been penetrated. He penetrated. Come on up. That's the picture we're seeing in the text. I fear that we fear to believe it. We should work hard to believe in Jesus so that we may receive mercy and timely grace. He says here, draw near, it's coming forward, come on in. Move from one space to the next, to the throne of grace. This is not the throne that Jesus is sitting on. We've read all through, you would read all through Hebrews, you can read in other places. It's the throne that the God, the Father is sitting on. And Jesus is sitting at his right hand. Sorry for you, it's right hand. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is the throne from which the very Word of God emanated to cut you to your core. And now he's saying, come to that very throne room. Why? To receive grace. You need grace. Come to the throne of grace to get grace. It's very redundant. It's very healing. You need grace. Come to the throne of grace. Get the mercy in time. The timely mercy, it says, to help in time of need. And so we're, we're invited in. summary of ideas that you're seeing here is you've been laid bare by the penetrating self-exposing word of God you peer with longing at the throne room Jesus went through 
ahead of you. He's in there. And you're wondering if you can go in too. Hold fast your confession. That implies that you have a confession. That implies that you have called out to Jesus in the past and said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I am laid bare before you. I'm laid bare before you, Father. Save me. And now you've got that confession. And he says, hold fast to that confession. Cling with all of your grit to your high priest as your only chance, your only hope, your only access point to the judge of all creation. And then run. Run at breakneck speed, allowing the confidence to rise as you bear down on the throne room of grace. Before the judge of all creation. Draw near. Come inside. Join the joyful party at God's right hand. Laugh and eat in the presence of the King who cut out your dead heart with His Word and replaced it with a heart of flesh that beats for His glory. So some applications as we're starting to wrap this up. Draw near. The purpose of the throne of grace is to discover grace. That's the purpose. Does this sound too good to be true? I hear a lot of people tell me, I feel distant from God. I feel distant from God. You know, I, I just, I'm not hearing anything from God. This is a vicious cycle. I feel distant from God, therefore I do not draw near to God. And I feel more distant from God, therefore I draw even further away from God. He is saying, draw near, come near to me. So again, how do we wrap our minds around this? Let's put some concrete on it. So I've got two, two things I was thinking of when I was seeing this. Number one, I personally, Craig Priestley, needs to stop the clamor and draw near. That means turn off all the gadgets, stop the Twitter feed, turn off the Facebook post, Turn off the television. Turn off the beeps and the boops of the calendar events that tell you where you're supposed to be when and who you're supposed to call then. And the emails that now come to your pocket and ding instead of going to your desktop, which is safely hidden behind the cabinet. This is not just a young person problem, by the way. Our minds are split so many different ways that even unbelieving sociologists are crying foul. Right? We're trying to think about a million different things at the same time. It takes us 15 minutes or more just to turn off the thoughts. And we think, why isn't God talking to me? We need to unplug. I need to unplug. That's, that's, that's where I've been straining with all of my might is turn off the phone. Turn off, you know, they, they can really, they can handle not getting access to me for these 15 to 30 minutes, Right? Turn off all the technology, walk away from it, maybe even go out in the woods somewhere. Do they have those out here? (laughs) Yes, they do. It's called a greenway. Um, But, you know, get away with God. As you're studying Jesus and your two-hour appointment with Him, you'll see that He regularly went off to a desolate place. Which means He's getting away from people. He's getting away from things. He's getting away from distractions. And He's saying, God, let's talk. Let's draw near. Pray. Open your mouth. I, when I was a youth pastor back in the day, I used to tell the kids, just take, go home, close your door, 
take a chair, set it in the middle of the room, and just pretend God is sitting in that chair and talk to him. Because we get all wrapped up in this, you know, I'm going to pray in a certain way with all these words that don't mean anything to me, but probably mean something to God. But no, just talk to God. Draw near to him. Stop the clamor. Become humble before him. Break before God. Tell him, I'm broken before you. I know you already know it, God. You just laid me bare with your word in the hands of another person. I see it. God, forgive me. Help me to dwell in your glory. Speak to me from your word. Let me spend time with Jesus here. Show me who he is. Change my heart. Stop the clamor. And then number two is leave behind false humility and draw near. I call it false humility to claim that we're too sinful to find God's mercy. I'll say it again. Some of you guys are really struggling with this. It's not because I've sat in your living room and you've told me. It's because there's a big group of people here. And I've just talked to too many people to know that there's not probably somebody in here right now that's struggling with this. False humility. I'm too sinful for God to forgive. You could be someone who is not a Christian, meaning you've not yet been forgiven, and you're saying that. Or you're already a Christian and you relapse into unbelief thinking, he doesn't really want me. It's false humility though. It's bad theology to believe that the throne of grace is insufficient for covering your sin. You're really not that big. God is bigger. And Jesus is equal to God according to our theology, right? The Bible teaches that Jesus and God are equal. So the same devastating, penetrating power of the Word, which leaves us exposed and unable to hide, has fixed redemption to work the way that it does. Let me unpack that a little bit. You cannot thwart His ability to forgive you any more than you can thwart His ability to see right through you. You get that? Like, if he's the God of the cosmos that can cut right through with his word, then he's also the God big enough to say, I will forgive with my blood and nothing else. So, if you have placed your trust in Christ and Christ alone as the payment for your sins, then I can look at you to say and say, sons and daughters of the king. Draw near. Sons and daughters of the King, draw near. And if you've not yet placed your trust in Him, and you are one of those people that we talked about before, that you might be in church, you might hear the Word, but you've not actually united the Word with faith, then I can say, future son and daughter of the King, draw near. Come to Him. And ask Him for His forgiveness and His mercy. Cry out to Him. So in conclusion, we should work hard to believe in Jesus for three reasons. Because we are laid bare before the Word of God. Because Jesus passed through the heavens and sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so that we may receive mercy and timely grace. Some of you guys in here this morning, I think you probably fall into the DJ camp. You know, it's like... You need to be utterly exposed. You need to see how guilty you are because you regularly think of yourself as, I'm okay. I'm good. 
you're in the camp where you need verses 11 through 13. You need to be seen as, actually, it's questionable if you even belong to God because you believe you are sinless. Okay? The other camp, a lot of you are in here, and that terrifies you, and it should, because you're in the Jenny, Jenny camp. Jenny, if she were saved. Of Christian. Okay? You're a, a redeemed, very scared Christian. And you need to understand how utterly confident you can be before the throne of grace. You don't realize it because your regular pattern in your mind is how much of a scumbag and rejected you are before God, which is false. And you need, to, you need a merciful Savior just like the other person needs a merciful Savior. We all need a merciful Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power to see through my facade. God, I pray that you would receive the most glory because of your ability to see through us to who we truly are. And then your infinite mercy to save us sinners. God, I pray that your Spirit's power would enable hiding people to be exposed. I pray that your mercy would enable frightful people to draw near. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to transition into Lord's Supper this morning.